1: Hello, my name is Sevan Najarian, and I'm a visual effects artist, director of cartoons. I'm known for several Channel 101 things, including most, most extraordinary space investigations, as well as the beginnings of Rick and Morty. Currently, I'm working on uh, a new cartoon for the whitest kids you know, possibly a f- uh, directing that and a, f- a full feature cartoon.
0: Sevan Najarian, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Thanks for having me. Anytime. I'm super pumped to have you. I've spent all day smiling and laughing, watching your content. Uh, You're so (laughs) creative. To, To give the audience a little bit more background on who you are and what you've done, I'm going to read a little bit from your bio and as I always say, of course, this is the internet, so anything that's wrong or oh, not no. up to date, you can, <laughs> you can feel free to jump in and correct me uh, at the end. But okay. it says, Savan is a seasoned VFX artist with extensive experience working on several TV shows, including the Sarah Silverman program, Scorpion, Last Man on Earth, Ghosted, Wet Hot American Summer, and Mystery Science Theater 3000. His experience surpasses post-production and includes animation, camera, and lighting, as well as directing and acting. Savan started his career at Channel 101 and was awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award in 2011. He started Midnight Kids Studios in 2013 and has expanded to 3D animation, virtual reality, and a full production stage in his backyard. He loves cats and <laughs> arguing about religion and politics. Yeah. Originally from Modesto, California, Savan is trying to follow in the footsteps of giants from the same town like George Lucas. You also worked on Greenleaf, all of Greenleaf. You've got some projects coming up. And as you mentioned before, uh, you were at the beginnings of Rick and Morty. You worked with uh, the likes of Dan Harmon and Justin Roiland, yeah. who were also from Modesto. And we'll definitely get into that. But um, I want to start um, sort of in at the beginning, if you will, um, and ask you, you know, you grew up in Modesto, California, and this is by your own admission, uh, you kind of described yourself as having this humble upbringing, this, this life in yeah. a farm town, and yet somehow you grew into this prolific creative artist and animator and <laughs> filmmaker and, and even businessman. How do you explain this? Well, I wouldn't say prolific.
1: I mean, I, I I would stay I would still say that I'm trying to continue to be humble, um even where I'm at now. Um but I think I identify with the George Lucas's aspect of like living in a farm town idea and then moving to a big town to do something and make something of myself. Um it really was a risk and it was a gamble. Like I did not think I was going to be I did not think I was going to, I really do, do think I stumbled upon all the success that I apparently have, um, like it took a lot of hard work and not a lot of goal setting. It was more of just like, I just want to do this and I'm going to do that and I want to do it good. And, and it's just more and more of that kind of attitude just lent me places and opened a bunch of doors and got me out of my small town, um, mindset and just allowed me to think like oh i probably should start a business and hire people and share the wealth and like you know build a stage in my backyard like that that bio is funny i think i wrote it (laughs) and i was like i need to be i need to be thorough about all the things it just sounds so like uh uh self-serving to say like i worked on this and this and that but uh but honestly the the thing i guess that that gets across is that I've been busy. Um, yeah, I, I think
0: so. And and it's true. I mean, we, we barely scratch the surface. You have 112 credits to your name between TV and film. So you've, you've, um, been to work and you're kind of, um, I would say a serial creative because you make a little bit of everything, including your own podcast, which you let out from time to time. Yeah. Uh, I am curious staying back sort of in your beginning days though. I mean, um, your background is uh I believe your your dad is from uh, Baghdad is is that correct immigrant from Baghdad
1: yeah my dad's my dad's um armenian um but he was born in Baghdad and and our family were like um refugees from like the first world war um yeah and so he was lucky enough to get sponsored to come over here in the United States and start a new life. Uh, but in that process, he became a Jehovah's Witness and then met my mom, who was also a Jehovah's Witness. And so I grew up as a Jehovah's Witness by default. So um, my dad, um, uh, he's on crutches. So I think that just appealed to him in, in a way where the promise as a Jehovah's Witness is like, you after armageddon if you survive if you survive uh you get to walk you get to be whole again you get to walk again and Mm. so it appealed to him so um he was a smart guy besides um besides that so i would i would say if he wasn't um disabled like he was he probably wouldn't have um, fallen for it Uh, but he did and i was subjected to it i have a lot of uh resentments about it um i'm still dealing with a lot of my resentments about it but i to- today i am i'm not involved with that at all um i wouldn't recommend it it was a very difficult life especially as a child it it wasn't it was chosen for me i didn't choose it it was more of like a uh a, a choice that was given to me but in the sense of like you either choose this or die you know so yes i, I felt like it was a bounded choice um That was laid before me and and it took a a while for me to get out of that so that in a small hometown a small town like a farm town um really had that sense of like luke skywalker being told like no you can't go (laughs) and play with your friends you have to help me on this farm and in my case it was go door to door so yeah, I, I've known a lot of Jehovah Witnesses, and
0: um, I was first introduced to it strangely enough, strangely enough through Michael Jackson. I was in the Michael yes. Jackson fan club when I was a kid, absolutely, <laughs> and I would always hear about it through the newsletters that he would send, or I, I guess I should say, my sister Angie was the was in the fan club, but I was sort of derivative, like getting all the derivative sort of mail through her.
1: Oh, he actually um, he actually prophesied or like he proselytized through his fan. Um, well. Oh, no. I, or I, from my memory,
0: from my memory, it was mentioned. Yeah, I don't. I don't think he oh, was wow. saying you should be a Jehovah's Witness. I think he was. It was more like, "Here's my bio, kind of thing." This is what like, I believe. Here's yeah. something about me and my family, and kind of. that. Yeah, so it's, it's really interesting, and I'm I'm glad you said it the way you did because at first I thought it was like a deal with the government, like you become a Jehovah's Witness, we'll let you come <laughs> over here. <laughs> like, it's <laughs> like I did not know that exists. I didn't know yeah. that existed. That would, that would be wild. But I guess the question that comes out of all that is were they supportive of you going into
1: this line of work? No, they weren't. Um, I think that, and that was one of the main battles of like me moving to Los Angeles is, um, well, what are you going to do? Was the question. And I'm like, I'm going to make movies. <laughs> this is what I want to do. Look what I went to school for. Mm-hmm. Um, and their their thought was, well, uh, just don't do anything bad. And in that case, that means don't work on rated R movies. Don't work on anything. That's like uh holiday related. Like if, if, if the show I'm working on is making a cart, uh, a, a episode about Halloween, you should probably stay. I mean, that's, these are all the things that I'm assuming that they were, they didn't say it, but that's all the stuff that they were afraid I was going to get involved with. And on top of that, um, you know, this is basically sin city number two, right? Besides Vegas. So like, I, I can get in all kinds of trouble. So yeah, they weren't really supportive of that. They wanted me to be a preacher and a door to door, um, person. Um, and they, and it's like, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, when you have children, um, it's a tradition to like, devote one of those children, one of your kids to God. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I was. <laughs> I was the one that was supposed to become a preacher, um and it just wasn't it just i don't know it just wasn't for me so not much support but i think nowadays they love hearing about what i'm working on so right um, they probably softened up to it a little bit i think parents do
0: come around in general it just seems to be the case at first it's it's a lot of fear and protection and and then it turns into oh we must've raised a pretty good kid. They're staying on their
1: own two feet and they're like making a life for themselves and carving it out and doing the thing, you know? Yeah. Once they're over all the disappointment, then, then they can really see you for who you are. You really have to, I mean, I don't know how many times I've said, I'm an adult. (laughs) I could do this (laughs) if I want to, I'm an adult. I'm making adult decisions. This is how it's going to be. Get used to it. So I think you just have to be strong like that um, with your parents sometimes. So you have a
0: quote. It says, It's all about good luck for me. I've never dreamed this far or had goals that match my position I'm in now. I've stumbled (laughs) into all the positions I'm in. I figured that if I'm just a hard worker, the opportunities to shine would come. And they did. So talk a little bit about that quote to us and what you mean by that. And then
1: also, I'd love to know, when did you know you were good? It's an interesting question. So um, I... I, that's that's something that I've been thinking about a lot lately of, of like, how did I get here? So I, um, like I said before, like I started off as a person that just liked to make things. Um, so I went to school doing that. And then um, I met... Justin Roiland in college. And I didn't think, you know, I didn't think like this guy's my ticket, like we're going to be big or anything like that. Like, I just thought like, Oh, this guy's fun to hang out with. He's like-minded. I'm going to make cartoons with him. Um, so we did. And then we kind of stumbled upon like making something that people liked. So we made like a bunch of commercials for a local record shop in Manteca, um, which is close to Modesto. And so we kind of got known for that up there. And then Justin moved down to Los Angeles, um, a year before I did. Um, and then he's like, Hey, come, come down. Like I'm, I'm just a PA down here, but like, it's kind of fun. And so I was scared to do that, but I eventually I did. I just took a risk, um, took a boat down here and, and burnt that boat which <laughs> the metaphor that I've been told to do. Um, and, and took that, took that risk and, and it was really hard at first. And, and, um, I was like, I had no money. Um, I stayed like at Justin's house for a little bit until I finally got a place, and and then I got a job, um, uh, not because of my experience, but because of somebody um, somebody was willing to say they knew me. So it was a lie. <laughs> it was like, uh, this person knows me, they're recommending me for a job. I'm going to have to pretend that I know this person. I never met them. So I got in and I recommend that actually. <laughs> I feel like that's, the, <laughs> if you really want to break into something, like it is true, you got to know somebody and, and just like pretend sometimes, you know, like if you have the skill and you're in your hard worker, it doesn't hurt to, um, you know, those little white lies to try to get into the industry because it's really unfair really have to know somebody um so so that happened um and then just like um i just kind of i don't know if i was i I stumbled upon channel 101 um justin and i and then a couple other friends so we started making cartoons for them um And then kind of stumbled upon my next gig. So I was working at like uh, daytime talk shows, which is like, whatever, that's not what I want to do, but it's a job and it was steady. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, um, so I stumbled upon working in um, a Comedy Central show um, called Too Late with Adam Carolla, which was was like, that's what I want to do. I want to work in comedy. That's, I mean, it's just, I'd rather do that than... (laughs) uh the Sharon Osbourne show or Tyre Banks show um, right. which is what I was working for before so so that was more my thing and I kind of felt like I stumbled into that and so all of a sudden people around me were like congratulating me and like and like I don't know praising me for all the things I'm doing and I'm like I'm I'm just figuring it out I'm not I'm not doing it like with any intention for praise, I'm just figuring this stuff out because it's fun. And it's like, I just want to make things work. Um, and then I met Sarah Silverman and Jack black. And it's like, all uh, just all of a sudden I'm being invited to their parties and stuff. And it's like, I don't know what's going on. Like I didn't, <laughs> I did not plan this for my life and it's just, so it just happens. So, and then, and then, you know, just perseverance and constant work. And, and like, I've probably worked, um, I was just thinking like I've worked in After Effects, Adobe After Effects, probably like maybe 30,000, 50,000 hours or something like that. What? So I guess that makes me like a, three, a a master of it three times, five times over. Depending right. on yeah, for sure. What definition you go by. So it really is just like I just put my head down and worked and then I got these opportunities. And, and I was always the kind of person that was like behind the camera or sitting at the edit bay. And I was offered to like be in front of the camera and act with Sarah silverman and and it kind of broke me out of this little shell and all my awkwardness was on screen and people loved it. so I'm like, okay, I'm gonna embrace my awkwardness. I think i'm gonna I make awkwardness look good, I guess. <laughs> so that's my thing and that's and people loved it so I just and then I just started getting better at better at just acting in general. so these days I do um i do uh I do uh cartoon voices every once in a while and and um especially for my own stuff I've been directing cartoons lately so I do a lot of the scratch tracks and and uh it really helps my directing to for me to act out things um, mm-hmm. ahead of time so but yeah so so stumbled upon that I mean and then, and then I'm just lucky to be friends with Dan Harmon and Justin Roiland when they become famous so um by association I'm like invited to things. And like, um, I don't know, just like, I could say I was involved with the Rick and Morty, uh, beginnings. And, and, uh, I could even say that I turned down working on Rick and Morty. (laughs) Uh, I turned down a job because I was my, my part of the, my business, my visual effects business was taken off big time Mm -hmm. at that time. So I'm like, I can't, I can't work on Rick and Morty. Um, little did I know that it was going to be like the number one cartoon in the world. Um, uh, and, and I missed my chance on that one.
0: Um, it really so did. Yeah. It, it really did blow up. I mean, it, uh, it's, it's my son's favorite cartoon <laughs> yeah, yeah, for, for sure. He? And so many, well, he's 18 now, but, oh, okay, but okay. before, I mean, this is when he was, this is 10 years ago, but yeah. Uh, but that's, I, I found out about it through him. He sat me down and made me watch uh, an episode <laughs> of it. It's like, Oh, this is actually very funny. and, um, it's interesting uh, hearing that. There's so much to dig into. There kind of sounds like you kept getting invited to places, kept getting chances, and through that mm-hmm. you you gained your confidence and kind of knew you were good at that point. Yeah. Uh, and just for the sake of the audience, uh, the college you're talking
1: about is Modesto Community College. where yeah, it's you called. Majored it's in TV called, and film. Yeah, Modesto Junior College. It, it is a community college. Um, but yeah, Modesto Junior College. I think I think George Lucas went there as well. Um, it's amazing. They have a ama- they have an amazing. alumnus you know what's funny though is they they got rid of that department so i don't think the film and television department is even there anymore so unbelievable um but that's where justin and i met and and so i don't know it's it's like they should they should think about it (laughs) before (laughs) getting rid of that it's it's so insane and you you
0: talked about burning the boats and i just wanted to comment on that too because so many creatives that are trying to make it or taking their big shot the way you described the one thing they don't do is truly burn the boats they they make a move let's say to la but they have this safety net that might exist that -hmm. allows them just to go back home or allows Mm -hmm. them to like take a job like that not the kind of job you take when you're still trying to pursue your dream but the kind of job that requires all your attention (laughs) and is truly a career and and they'll say well i burned the boats i went i did it but when you look at the stories you're like oh you you didn't really burn the boats you really it wasn't really fuck or walk for you so to speak yeah you held on to something
1: yeah right right Uh, and then um oh go ahead i'm sorry yeah for me it was um i think i was more it was just an opportunity to escape my religion in a way too um and also and also i just thought like you know what I'm just going to, I just want to do what's what I want to do. And there's nothing going to stop me from doing it. In fact, I've actually, when I first moved here, I was not successful in trying to get a job in, within the first week or two. So I applied at Best Buy, <laughs> which is where I used to work in Modesto. Yeah, And I got the job and then, and then, and then another a production job called me and I was like, okay, so I could just turn down Best Buy right now. <laughs> like literally the next day I got a production job. So um, I'm right. glad I never had to do that, but I was determined to just stay here until it happened. So, um, if it takes that, then it takes that. But I think for the most part, what was the saving grace is not just getting a production job was it was doing my production job during the day. And then at, after the words, we just made all our channel one-on-one stuff. Um, so I really was working a ton of time, like probably 16 hour days, um, probably more sometimes.
0: Wow, and uh, we'll definitely get into that uh, in this conversation. Were you always good at animating, drawing, filmmaking? Like, at what point was there a moment, let's say, when you were growing up, where you said, "Okay, this is this is what I want to do with the rest of my life—religion or whatever, be damned."
1: I don't think there was really a moment like that. Um, It was started as a hobby. of, uh, I, I remember some friends of ours just like made this like commercial for, um, this fake like product for, and they decided to send it into America's Funniest Home Videos and they were constantly rejected, but it was funny to watch what they were doing. They were just being silly. Um, And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. And they were doing like random camera tricks, like putting, like holding the camera upside down and like putting their hands on, on the ceiling and like pretending like they're walking on the, on, on the ground, right. With their hands. (laughs) So I'm like, Oh, that's wow. You could do that. So I had a camera and I started doing the same thing and I started, and then I was like, Oh, you know what? Like I, I actually like doing this, like trying to figure out how it works, camera tricks. And, and like, um, so I put a bunch of Legos in front of the camera and like started doing stop motion and then like, uh, and, and I started learning computers at the same time. And I think I was animating frame by frame stuff in like, I don't know, MS paint or something or, Oh, it was called something like act. Um, mm-hmm. I think it was like a precursor to like a PowerPoint. So basically if you think, think like it's a PowerPoint kind of prog- program where I'm MS painting and then sending it over to PowerPoint and like, and then, and then pushing play <laughs> between the slides. That's how, that's how you, I figured out how to sort of animate in a weird, crazy amazing. Way. Um, but I didn't really hold on to that as like, this is what I want to do with my life. I, th- I, um, I started, um, learning Photoshop and like, um, and then I took classes at MJC and I, I and, and my main focus was just like, I just want to do television and film. I don't care about anything else. I, I didn't, never graduated. That's all I took was just like, just, just electives and mm-hmm. um, nothing, none of the general. And, and then I took enough to where I could just like teach myself. And I think I was the one person that was like overly excited to make films in our class. And so I ended up like learning all the shit jobs, like lighting, you know, nobody wants to light, you know, like, so I, <laughs> I, am like, all right, I'll do that because I, uh, who cares? Like I like lights. Um, and that's mm-hmm. to this day, I'm like, I'm huge with lighting. Like I have my whole stage. It's a whole big thing. Um, I have a full on light grid, a bunch of DMX, um, systems with, with like all connected to an iPad. And like, I'm just constantly, like I could, I could put on a full on DJ show uh, if I wanted to, or I could s- light random sets on a green screen if I wanted to just for my laptop or my, my iPad. That's amazing. Um, so I think just, it goes along with this stumbling into it. It's like, I, I guess I'm good at this. This is a hobby. Oh, it's I'm monetizing this hobby. Oh, I guess I'm good at it. Um, Oh, audience is laughing at my jokes. Um, Oh, the, we don't have to make like really super smooth cartoons. We can just do it shilly, and people still laugh because the content is funny. And so like learning all that stuff, I didn't realize I was good until we like, until like maybe House of Cosby's when when we first had a viral video before YouTube movies even around before, probably before even the word viral was even coined. And so. that uh,
0: is a perfect segue into my next question, because we've mentioned this a few times and i suppose at this point it's the elephant in the conversation which is mm-hmm. what in the world is channel 101 it really was sort of the, your 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 breeding ground if you will for for doing all these different tests and and learning how uh, the game sort of worked and getting good and getting confident so uh for our audience tell us what is channel 101 and how how did it sort of build you up and become instrumental to your career.
1: Yeah. I think the short answer is, um, because it's kind of a complicated thing. It's kind of hard to describe, but the short answer is channel one one is a monthly film festival where you make a five minute short in a form of a television show. And the audience watches maybe 10 of those and they get to vote for their favorite five. Um, mm. and then when, if you get enough votes, you get to make your next episode. um, it was a live screening. Um, and also there was a part of it that existed just as a, an online community back in the, back in the day before YouTube. So it was an, it was a way for creatives like myself or like the people like, like Lonely Island, like Andy Sandberg, um, to make videos and portray it, put it somewhere on the internet before YouTube. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time it was like a live, it was a live show. It was a competition. Um, and so I would say that that's like my second film school. Um, uh, I, I learned what I needed to learn in the community college. And when I moved here, it became just my practice, my, um, the thing I wanted to do all the time. I think it was a matter of six months of living here before I found it. And it was just starting probably back. It was like 2003. Um, I think it just started in 2002. But in 2003, I got involved with it. It's it's only been a few months old, um, and we just we're kind of on the ground floor. And it was like, oh, this is stuff we already do. It's we do shorts. <laughs> where it's, it's comedy. It's wacky. It's like you know, cartoony stuff, and we fit right in. Um, and so for the for the next like 10 to 15 years, I was heavily involved, and I think that's where all my credits on IMDb comes from because uh, at a certain point somebody put all of the channel one-on-one credits on IMDb and all of a sudden I'm like, I look like I got, su- I was super busy during that time, which I guess is true. <laughs> but like all of a sudden I had this like huge IMDb page and it's kind of ridiculous to see r- some of these titles on my IMDb page. It's like, what is this? Uh, two girls, one cup, the show. What did you work on? <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, um, yeah, yeah it's, it's yeah, just yeah. A, it was a breeding ground for a lot of, um, interesting people like Tim and Eric, um, you know, Dan Harmon. Um, uh, there's a lot of people that came out of it, you know, like Andy Sandberg, and there's even a, a New York chapter. And a lot of people came out of that as well. Um, the guys from human giant were, were part of it. Um, so it, for a bit uh, people were looking at it. I think around the house of Cosby's time, that's, that's one of the shorts we made. Um, that was pretty popular around the same time. An, another short called uh, yacht rock was made. Um, which was also very popular at the time, um, a lot of eyes were on us um, for recruitment. Um, and I think that's how Andy Sandberg got his chance on SNL and uh, um, uh, us, including Justin, um, got a lot of eyes on us for our cartoon work. Um, and so that was kind of just the beginning of us being like um, recognized by the rest of the like normal Hollywood. Cause, Cause we're playing around in this little microcosm Hollywood called Channel 101 um learning how to make pilots and get rejected constantly um so doing that over and over and over again i think just kind of uh strengthened those those muscles for making things yeah you just kind of touched on it as well which
0: is i have this theory about channel 101 and why it was so effective and why it launched so many people one i think for the animators in there it's probably a reaction to the success of south park but and and then studios and, and other production companies wanted to come in and compete against that potentially um, in sort of the rise of Adult Swim at the same time. But also, I, I think one of the reasons everyone got so good was that Channel 101 was an immediate feedback loop. Yeah, You got to find out what people liked and didn't like right away. So why aren't there more immediate feedback loops in independent film for, for those learning to create and wanting to create and want to wanting to put their stuff out there. And, and how did it affect your, uh, skill level, that immediate feedback loop?
1: I think, um, yeah, the, 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 the deadline of once a month was difficult because we all had to work and this is all done for free. So it's not like we're making any money at channel one one. We don't ask for money. Uh, screenings are free. Um, so you had to commit yourself, um, in a way where, um, you really just had to get it done. Like, like no matter what, like figure out a way to get it done. So that pushes you to like, um, figure out like interesting ways of, of, of making films and also not caring. Like per, it's perfect when it's, when you stop editing, you know, like it, things are, things are better when you just stop tinkering. Um, mm-hmm. like just, just, and that's the lesson you learn with like a, a monthly thing like that. It's like, just stop, stop, being obsessive and like or just get it mostly there and then that's enough you know like you learn like to not overwork on something um and i think at the time um there wasn't like i said there was no youtube so for creatives that wanted to make things they really had to like know how to create a website you know like the or like make a bunch of tapes and send it to a bunch of places you know like Mm -hmm. the whole the whole uh film festival circuit you had to do that and that cost a lot of money um so with at that time channel 101 was just giving us this place and um i mean it was very comedy centric but um it was just giving uh, us filmmakers that were comedy centric uh, to a place to like, just put something and had an audience. And it was really popular back then. And, um, I think we don't have stuff like that now is because of YouTube. I think, I think there's just like, people saw the, the technology going towards, uh, online videos and they capitalized. And now there's, it's, it's really diffuse. There's like, you know funny or die or like at the time it, there was something called super deluxe and mm-hmm. um there was all these like even comedy central had their own thing going on for their website and 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 other things like there was all kinds of things at the time just like popping up after channel 101 and i think that ultimately turned into the youtube and and vimeo and all these other places and and because there's so many places to put something um it that means there's a lot of crap you know there's the, that just means that nobody's like the gates are opened. There is no gatekeeper anymore. Um, and for channel one one it was, it was definitely, there was gatekeepers and it was the most creative, successful, successful, creative people were the gatekeepers. So they were the ones that said, okay, this is funny. This is our sensibility. This, this can be in the show. Um, and YouTube's not like that. You can put anything on there. So I think um, the minute uh, it, it was easy to put things on the internet, um, it, it, it like things like channel 101 kind of i mean it's still around i still do stuff for it sometimes but things like channel 101 just became less important to everybody because now you could monetize on youtube as a star like just by talking to the camera you don't have to be that creative that's
0: right and well it's it's interesting youtube did youtube did come along and eat the world it seems like of, of right. video what i like about channel 101 is that it's a curated sort of a viewership that's interested in what the creatives were making. So I don't even think it's an issue necessarily of, of everything is crap or or there's a lot of crap out there. Cause you're right. There is, it's more of an issue of there is no curation. So there's so mm-hmm. much stuff. I think the viewers actually in a paradox of choice. I mean, hell yeah, I'm in a paradox of choice every day when I turn on my Apple TV and it's like, there's 50 tiles for me to click on. And there's a deep, deep, library of content beneath every single one of those tiles right like yeah mm-hmm. so it it does it, it it does make for winners and losers and people do just miss out on stuff that's fantastic but if you do the work that channel 101 did early which is hey this is our curated audience and here's how we're going to do it and we're actually going to have sort of some ranking here that gave an immediate feedback loop that made you better i don't think youtube views are enough to make a filmmaker better if that yeah, makes sense like th- like that's not what happens to me
1: no yeah there's something about have sitting in a live audience in a theater um and watching them react to the crafted jokes that you hope they laugh to and they do like or they don't and you know next time like those kinds of jokes don't do well in a big crowd you know and also the first theater we were screening channel one-on-one stuff at was a place called Cinespace, which was like a club, like a bar, like mm-hmm. multiple bars. And there was people like servers serving you food and stuff. Like people were drunk. Like you really had to cut <laughs> through that, that mentality sometimes. So I think that's why we did so well because Justin Roiland's sentiment was let's shock the, the audience and let's just try to throw as much as we can at them. And like, laugh real loud and like cut through the chatter. Like Justin has the strongest voice ever. So he, his voice, like it just echoes in everybody's head. It doesn't matter if you're drunk or you're not paying attention or you're in the bathroom. So, um, that was also another challenge. Um, just yeah. Curating for a live audience that might be drunk.
0: Um, yeah, it's, it's a really great point because when I would play, I used to, uh, I started my career in creativity, I would say in music and still do music stuff studio here at the house and, and, and write. But when I would be performing on stage, you would have to find a way to let people know you were about to play a song, especially at these like bars and like, like these are like dive bars, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> like, like when everybody's paying a, a, bunch of money to see you on stage, they're fucking quiet because they (laughs) came to see you. But if they came to get a drink and some food and that you happen to be playing, you have to let them know you're there and you, you, you figure out the, so the first time you do it, you, you fail like they're not paying attention to you. And then you realize, okay, I'm going to have to sing a really strong chord, really loud right off the bat, this is the thing we're going to do and everybody's going to stop and then I'm going to have everyone's attention. Mm -hmm. On YouTube, I just record my song the best I can. I'll I'll lip sync the whole video. I record it in a studio. Uh, I'm I'm pitch perfect. And if they click on it, they're watching sort of the best of me and they're there to watch it. So I don't get better at performance. Mm -hmm. I just... You know, I just get views and clicks. Yeah.
1: So it's a it's you a great point.
0: Producing yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. Exactly. There is one place that works like Channel One Hundred and One, but unfortunately, it isn't in film. It's in design, and it's a t-shirt uh-huh. company called Cotton Bureau. Mm. And what they do is, is they have designers design a t-shirt, and everyone comes and votes what the best designs are. And if your design isn't voted in the top, then it, it you're not able to sell it. Yeah. And if it Diz, does get voted to the top they put it in their store they sell it for you on your behalf and then you get and they do all the warehousing and all that stuff i think it's kind of a brilliant idea and maybe yeah. they maybe they took it from channel 101 Who crowdsourcing
1: knows? yeah crowdsourcing your your, your- your content is, is always a popular thing. I don't know. Sometimes I don't trust the audience though. So, uh, uh, (laughs) it's also too, sometimes the audience just like was different every time. Like you, you'd see, like, you'd ask like, who's here for the first time and like half the people there would raise their hand. And it's like, wow, you really have to just like make things for people that are just coming right off the street. So you can't just do cereals. Like, I don't know. Sometimes the audience bugs the shit out of me, but, um, because like you just want to make like a solid like story arc across several episodes and you can't if somebody's just like, I just want to see people kicking nuts, you know, like, or <laughs> I just want to see, I just want to hear my favorite rock songs, you know, I don't know. So Like, like, and also I heard recently that sometimes people would, would tune out when a cartoon would come on. So and that just kind of <laughs> kind of bummed me out. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah. The audience can be can
0: be a razor. That's yeah. for sure. It can go one way or the other, but you guys did plenty of that stuff that you're describing. I, and so I think you won with that. I think there was an episode of one of the shorts I saw where you had Sarah Silverman fart on someone and it was <laughs> hilarious and it's just, it's Sarah, and it's nothing but just Sarah Silverman farting. Yeah. And I thought that was funny as hell. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> There's nothing else to say about it. Farts are funny. Yeah. Um, so, so I get exactly what you're, what you're saying. You've, you've done a lot. Um, what are your credits or productions do you consider as being the most
1: consequential, uh, to your
0: career and, and why?
1: Um, so I worked on the, um, the Sarah Silverman program with Rob Schraub of directing. He's mm-hmm. one of the other creators of channel One Hundred and One, uh, yep. alongside Dan Harmon. They both created, um, Sarah Silverman program. So I think that was my first time working like professionally as a visual facts artist. Um, before that i was just doing channel One One visual effects um so it was like cheap and just get it done kind of stuff and like if it looks cheesy whatever so Ch- sarah silverman it was the first time i actually got paid to like make visual effects and so i think my professionalism like boosted quite a bit there because i was making it for television so i think that's one of the main jobs i've had that boosted my career because um I just got to be really creative it was basically just doing like channel 101 with a huge budget so um, <laughs> and also working with rob schrob who's a great director and he knows what he wants um and it, it's always it's always hard to work for a director that just doesn't know what they're doing or doesn't know what they want and they ask too many people and they're just not confident but rob is not that he he knows exactly what he wants because if if i can't do it he probably he'll try to figure out how to do it so I've, I've worked with other directors like that, like David Wayne, where it's like, oh, if David Wayne doesn't, uh, if, if David Wayne doesn't know how to do it, he's probably not going to ask you to do it. So he learned how to use Photoshop and he sent me like a real quick thing. He's like, Hey, do something like this. And it's like, I appreciate that because he has a vision and he, brings it a certain, to a certain level. And he's just saying, clean this up for me. And I, I love that about it. So I think that's where I learned it on the Sarah Serverman program. And from there, I think, I feel like I really did a lot of things that I didn't know I was capable of doing then. Um, and it translates to today where I feel like um, I'm on that game now. Like I, I feel like I could pretty much do anything in the visual effects world um, to the point where my business that I have, is basically automated. I can step away from it now because um, I've trained people to do it, um, and so I'm able to step into more directing gigs for um, cartoon work. I love um, it that I've been doing lately. A lot of people interchange
0: VFX with SFX, so visual yeah. effects with special effects. Yeah, bugs the talk, shit out of me when talk, to talk to us about the differences and, and where the the lines blur, if if at all.
1: So there's a big difference um on set uh, sfx person is a person that has that's triggers like smoke and fire and stuff like that like the, it's an actual person on set that's in charge of creating special effects on set visual effects is is uh, usually um, referred to as digital um, effects. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it, it usually means, and if I'm on set, it's usually I'm just supervising. I'm not actually doing anything. I'm just supervising and making sure things are being shot properly for the visual effect to, to be done properly. Right. So visual effects is more of just like the, it's done afterwards, not on set at all. Um, sometimes you do previs, a, a previsualization of an effect just so that the director can can approve it or like pre-approve something. But um, uh, I I often get called a special effects guy, um, and and it's and it, I'm not that <laughs> I'm, I'm not the guy that brings like the spark wielding guns and like or, you know there's these are the people that are probably pyrotechnics also like right. um, they're the ones that rig up all the squibs and stuff those are those are special effects people uh, visual effects is uh, a job where it's done digitally. Um, it's done in the edit. It's a post-production job. It's not a production job. That's very good. Very, very well articulated. And um,
0: one does wonder, I guess we'll get into the, to this in a little bit, but one does wonder if VFX will sort of eventually swallow F FX or special effects, special effects. Yeah. Because there really isn't anything that you can't create now, like the software and the tools are so powerful you could make an explosion that looked like an explosion.
1: Yeah, I think think it's, I mean, I guess it it just comes down to money. So, like, think about it this way. So, if you have a whole scene, um, if you don't have a visual effects budget, which could be expensive, if you just have to hire somebody with a a mister to, like, miss the scene for atmosphere... You know that doesn't need to be a visual effect. It's actually cheaper to just have the entire thing shot with a mister in the room. Um, I would say squibs are they look better, in -hmm. my opinion, when they're real. Um, It also helps the actor. Um, Smoke is easy to do visual effects. That's that's super easy to take off their hands sparks and stuff like that <laughs> fire all that like all the all the um all that kind of stuff is really easy but sometimes if you just really need like a ton of shots with the same thing over and over again it's best just to have a visual effects or super uh special effects guy on set and and um and have them take care of it like if you're doing like i did i worked on children's hospital for um, adult swim and we were doing this big huge finale fight uh like a uh, battle scene mm-hmm. and um and it it was directed by the daniels um and they kept asking for and they're visual effects people too but they kept asking for like practical special effects on set and so we would have all these cannons um shooting debris you know like it's there's a certain amount of like debris flying and falling that you can't really replicate so some of that stuff is really helpful to have done practically on set um like Oh, another part of special effects is I guess would be considered like blood stuff. So if you're if you're doing like a Walking Dead episode, like those guys are nuts. Like you (laughs) there's a lot of that stuff that I cannot replicate. And 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 it's it would be great if they just did all that work, you know? Like we we do get um we don't get a lot of credit for enhancing that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um and I'm always bugged by the fact that uh the people at Walking Dead never ever say how great their visual effects guys are at putting their special effect their practical effects together because it does it, it is a partnership a lot of times with those kinds of jobs um so
0: right it kind of answers the question the, the part of the question about where those lines kind of blur
1: yeah i always um, try to introduce myself to special effects guys and and um, just let them know, like, I'm not trying to take your job, you know, like mm-hmm. I want to make your things look good and you always make me look good. And if 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 you have an idea that we can work together on, then, um, then let's do it. So yeah, I always love perfect. those guys. It would be odd if I didn't mention the fact that the last
0: year was the pandemic, the coronavirus uh-huh. and, and what that meant to a visual effects artist. But I found something you said, this quote. Okay. And I don't know how you did this. And I want to talk to you a little bit about it. But on the real life sci-fi podcast, Uh episode 241, you said something needs to happen to white people. (laughs) What? I said that? (laughs) Yes. Once (laughs) white people are inconvenienced in such a way, there could be a revolution. And on January 6th, White people got just uh, mad enough to go to the Capitol. How did you predict this? Oh, I did. I predicted that. Wow. Holy crap. Um <laughs> this oh, by the way, and for the audience, this was said on March 16th,
1: 2020. Oh wow. I totally predicted that. You Holy did crap. Um I uh I think that's just something I've always known. Like I think like um i i don't identify as white even though like i'm half white. I'm, I'm armenian so i'm middle eastern but um so i feel like i identify with people that have like you know suffered or like had to overcome stuff um so i always had this like um resentment towards people that felt entitled um so i really felt like you know we're all fat and lazy are Americans. Like there really isn't anything, nobody ever changes unless there's pain. Right. So, mm-hmm. and, and, and there's a lot of people out there that are, that are disadvantaged that are constantly in pain and they're trying to change things and they're being knocked down. Um, they're not allowed to change because the status quo, um, a lot of people in power don't want these people to change. Um, it's not painful enough for them. So I thought like, well, once white people are pained, the, then they're going to, then they're going to cry, you know, like <laughs> I I, th- I feel like I've always thought that like white people really need to be <laughs> disadvantaged in some way. To create a revolution and 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 the, the sad thing is it's not the revolution I was thinking about. <laughs> That's right. not the revolution It's, it's, it's like when you rub on for. a
0: genie's lamp and you pr- and you wish for something and yeah. the genie gives it to you literally and it's not the way you expected to get
1: it. <laughs> I mean, I think I think it, it was probably more in line with like um the women's movement that happened. I think I was I was more in line with something like that. It's like, yeah, white people are finally being in pain. I mean, yeah, it had to take like women um to do it. But at the same time, there's a lot of white people in that movement. Um, But, yeah, it's just sad that it's like what I predicted isn't exactly what I was hoping for. (laughs) Not at all. Uh, How did you do?
0: How did you do in 2020? Was it OK? Oh, man. Kind of rough during the virus? Um, Yeah. so I guess we're still in the virus. I don't want to be flippant. But during 2020?
1: Yeah. So 2020 was fine. It was like. a lot of times i know at the beginning of the year what i'm going to be doing all year so i had i had a plan i had a couple clients i had a few shows i knew what their schedule was um i was working on this disney show i just finished it um actually we're gonna probably finish it tomorrow um it's called just roll with it um on disney channel and and they have an audience um and the minute it was like an audience full of kids that actually interact with the with the show so it's they're, Mm -hmm. they're really important you can't just get rid of them Um, so in March, when, when everything came down and everybody was shutting down, that was like the, uh, the first show that shut down because they were, they had a bunch of kids. So they just didn't want to put them in, um, in harm's way. So, so instantly, like the main job I had was just like gone. Um, and we were, we just went on hiatus. I, I sent everybody home. Um, I basically said like, take care of yourself, take care, like, you know, take care of your mental health because it's probably going to be a thing. Um, because I know whenever I don't have something to do, my mental health could suffer. Um, so that's what that that's what happened, work wise, and then and then I decided to break up with my girlfriend at the time, <laughs> like literally a week into the shutdown. Um, and so then all of a sudden I was alone um, right. in, a, in a big house that I usually use as an office space for all my employees. So it's just me and a bunch of computers and just like at my own devices. Uh, And a depression like really came in because like, I don't, I mean, I, I just didn't know what to do because I don't know. I just didn't know what to do. I was, it was, I welcomed the break and I thought I was like, Oh, this is fine because I don't go anywhere anyways. I work from home. I could continue to work from home. Um, but the, the work dried up. Um, so it was like several months of just nothing um coming through um and I, I forgot what I ended up doing. I think I oh, I ended up just starting um a uh there's this is, so channel 101 created this uh, audio version of itself called Frequency 101 and it's mm-hmm. basically a podcast um but it's the same thing. It's just the same kind of competition. You submit a 5-minute audio show and it competes against other audio shows. And so I just dove into that because it's like, I can just, you know, we could just record our voices and like do sound design and make show like soundscapes and submit that. So I kind of just jumped right into that. And then all of a sudden um, things started happening. Like the, the, the industry kind of came back. Oh, before that though, I was, I was contacted by all kinds of people asking me, about cartoon work um because they're like well production shut down like what are we gonna do maybe we can make a cartoon version so I, i don't know how many times i've bid on a cartoon version of a show uh including something like pen 15 um and 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 then when the budget and the schedule came to to the people that i was bidding on uh bidding to they looked at it and were like, they had no experience with cartoons. They're looking at it and like, oh, I guess uh, we can't afford this and it's going to take too long. That's not what we wanted. Um, So everybody's just thinking like, oh, cartoons are easy and cheap. Uh, But when they see the numbers, they're like, oh, that costs the same as making a real thing, like making a live action (laughs) thing. And I was hoping we were going to save money by doing this. And so just a lot of people had these ideas and it just never panned out. Um, And that was several months of that through the summer, um, until, until finally, um, Starburns, the, the, um, Starburns, uh, animation company hired me as a producer to work on random cartoons. Um, and I did, uh, uh, I started, I just started working on this thing for FX, which we're almost done with. And, um, and before that, um, the Disney show came back, and they had this genius idea of just like reusing footage of their audience and just like pretending the audience was there the whole time. That's, that um, is
0: kind of genius, actually. And
1: and then and then the um, the amount of work that came in was like, can you remove these masks from these people in all these shots? <laughs> so like, yeah, the crew sometimes the crew is in the shot um, on purpose. Um, and then so they send it to us they're like can you remove the cruise masks here and so that's what we've been doing for the last few months um fixing that up and then um and then delilah is starting up so um production's so, so like your, your new right show up, on the uh, o network right on the o, open network yeah on own um so production just started back up and and I think since October they've just been at it and and i think um there's another show called tacoma fd that's probably going to start back up and i'll I'll be working on that as well you're a busy um,
0: man this is exciting yeah. for you and you're right i mean depression is an odd thing because you don't even realize you are and then one day you look up and you're waking up at noon and you're like why did i do that yeah <laughs> there was a there was a lot of that
1: yeah mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> Yeah. Got back into the weed. <laughs> yeah. You know, it,
0: all, all the things, right. Exactly. Yeah. All those um, things. I'm, I'm currently in the process of losing my COVID 15 and that oh, was yeah. kind of the way I displayed it. I just ate way more than I normally would eat uh, during oh, 2020 oh, for yeah. sure.
1: Yeah. I definitely gained some weight. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I,
0: I, 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 you know, I put it on, I packed it in. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> it's no secret that in the world of VFX, uh, hours and overtime pay has always been a concern the amount of hours one is working you know you mentioned the 16 hour days mm-hmm. uh, I, I assume that might be why you named your studio midnight, midnight kid yeah. studio because you're up all <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> times kind of the of a night yep.
0: mm-hmm. yeah working on this stuff um but there is a real concern about burnout you know what can be done about about this what should be done about
1: this you know um i i I put, I make myself burn out. So, and I had to learn how to do that, how to not do that to myself. So I know that there's some effects houses that are kind of like, um, sweat box, like, you know, sweatshops, uh, and they're like really strict and they just make sure they get their bang for their buck or whatever. But, um, I created a, um, a culture at my place where it's like, dude, if you're stressed, take the day off, you know, like don't work more than eight hours. Um, it's not, we're just making movies. We're not, you know, we're not saving lives. We're just making movies. It's not that important. Um, like, so that's my attitude now so that nobody else gets stressed. Like I, I kind of take on the stress myself, but, um, lately I've been doing it, doing better with that lately. So I've been like making sure I don't work weekends, making sure I don't work more than eight hours, maybe 10 hours, may, maybe 10 hours a day sometimes. Like, all right, at least if I'm going to work that long, just take breaks. And And these days, like it's great because I can just hire people to do like it's delegating is was a hard skill but now I'm way better at that um so in my business there's no burnout hopefully I don't think um another thing I've noticed that some companies like really crack down on like um wasting time like Oh, I'm going to, while this thing renders, I'm going to read this article or I'm going to watch this YouTube thing real quick, or I'm going to mess around. Like, I'm going to just call zoom with the other guys. And like, we'll just kind of have an hour long discussion about whatever, while we work. I'm okay with that. I, I read an article that said people are actually more productive when you let them do that. Um, and I think, uh, visual effects places get a bad rap for, like cracking down on it, like they literally like put installing firewalls so you can't access YouTube. You know, like we need that though. Like in our in our world, we need to find references. We need to be inspired. We need, you know, we need creative input as w- in order to creatively output. So I'm not um, I'm not opposed to people kind of in air quotes wasting time while they work, um, because I think that's important to keep your mental sanity while you're doing tedious things. Um, And like, I work so hard sometimes that my wrist hurts. Um, And I would not want that for anybody because that's my moneymaker. And I know that that's a lot of other people, like people that draw, for me. Um, sometimes their wrist hurts and sometimes they get tired of drawing the same thing over and over again, but that's their job, you know? So I don't mind taking breaks, resting, and and just making sure you take care of yourself. And that's just the way I run things. Um, and I know that visual effects in general gets a bad rap for... Um, I think you just got to be realistic. Um, I, I, and there's those stories about like Rhythm and Hues and other companies that like overpromise. And then they're also over budget in the end, and they have to, they have to eat it. Um, that's a, that's a rare skill to figure out how to promise correctly, how to bid on things properly and how to, um, know that you have the funds to do something. And I think a lot of times in the bigger projects, um, people just so want that thing on their resume that they're like, yes, we'll do it for 10 million, even though it's going to cost us 12 million. and that's going to put us out of business, but we want the, we want our name on it. You know, like I'm not, I don't like that attitude. Um, and luckily that hasn't really happened to me that often. Um, so I think that's the, that's the biggest thing. And I, and and we're so small, we're, we're a small company, so we're not getting million dollar gigs right now. Um, we're, we're just steady, slow and steady. Uh, we have about 17 employees right now. So, um, we're not huge. A lot of the, the,
0: I guess original sin started in VFX around subsidies mm-hmm.
1: and the pressure
0: yeah. that subsidies put on studios. So the American you have studios, any yeah. American studios. Do you have any thoughts or ideas? Have you had ideas around how you would change the way subsidies work for VFX workers?
1: Well, it's hard. It's I mean, it's hard to say Canada. You can't give, you know, you can't. We can't regulate that kind of stuff. So, like, if Ireland wants to pay, you know, pay an effects company to work from, or to hire from them, you know, like you can't. It's hard to not do that. Um, it's hard to not be attracted to that. Um, I think that that doesn't really affect me that much because, uh, like I said, I'm a smaller company. I think that affects bigger companies where they're really looking at the millions. So. A lot of times I've heard like, um, uh, to do visual effects on a movie, it's like straight up $10 million, um, that a visual effects company oh, will get could, could be more. A lot of times it's, it could it's, be more. it's 30, sometimes
0: it's a third of the total production budget, depending right. on what the film is. It's, I think, I think
1: 10 million yeah. is like kind of a, a typical, like, um, just general movie. Um, and you can, you can do that in Canada for 8 million. (laughs) Like it'll cost you 8 million to do it in Canada. So the studios pressure you to find the best price. So I think it's almost like the American studios are like not stepping in to say like, you know what? We should keep this in the United States. And we'll give you the extra 2 million because that's how much it costs and, and get it done here. Um, Well, it's, it's a, it's a crazy thing because I, you know, I don't know if they can
0: because the profit margins are are so slim that if they lose the 2% or the 3% or the four or 5% on their subsidy, right. And now every, now their entire film division is in the red. And, and so it becomes this um, it's like visual effects, provided something to film that allowed film to be something it had never been before right Mm -hmm. like like now we can have the transformers now we can have the matrix now we can have these big bombastic movies that are that please so many audiences worldwide and and have the potential to make so much money for the industry and 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 for everyone involved in it but now you can't go back like you Mm -hmm. can't uh, you, you can't you can't unwind that, and so now you absolutely need the subsidy to be profitable. Uh, if your film just does okay, now if it like blows out of the water and it's like Titanic at the time, mm-hmm. then you could be okay. But even Titanic, I think I think Digital Domain, yeah, they did the Titanic and went they they underbid by nine million and went out of business. Oh, so thanks. yeah. And this this happens even on films that make more money than because the the, the rate is fixed and so mm-hmm. I guess the you don't have the concern that those bigger houses have you're saying because no, you're not yeah. going to like pick up the company and move to Vancouver or move to the yeah. UK to to get the to to meet the demand of the studio.
1: Well, also too, I try to stick to television, which is it's way more cut cut and dry. Anytime I get involved in film, I always regret it. Every time I get involved with commercials, music videos, um, any of that stuff, I always regret it. Anytime I do television shows, cut and dry, perfect. Like I always can make my budget. Always, um, and it, I think the idea behind that is like it's not just a flat rate. They might have a flat rate in, in mind, but I'm bidding per shot. Like if you want to give me a hundred shots, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you an average per shot, you know, price. And if you want to give me two more, that, that average goes up, you know, or that, you know, the, my, my, my bill goes up. So, um, and for the most part I'm able to stick to their budgets. Um, but because there's an air date because there's a deadline and it's pretty specific and, and it needs to be done faster. There's no toying around with like, um, Oh, we should tweak the color here. Or can you show me like different versions of this here? Or like, you know, on movies, like, they'll do all the work and then they'll show it to the director and the producers. And like, there's so many cooks that they're like, ah, oh, that's not what I wanted it to look like, but they did it all. And they did it under their budget. And they're like, can they just like change this? And that cost, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for like one little note sometimes. So that's where the problem comes from making visual effects for movies is that there's just too many, there's too many opportunities to change something. And, Overages occur and that's not how the structure of a movie budget is for visual effects for TV. It's like, Hey, we can't afford this. I guess we're just cut around it, you know? (laughs) So, and I prefer that and that's the attitude I prefer. So I tend to stick to television shows um, as much as I can because that, that method of um, working. And nowadays it's like, you can make full on, you know, movie quality TV shows nowadays. So I'm full, I'm fulfilled with the type of work I want to do. It used to be like a stigma. Like I want to be a filmmaker, not a TV maker. Uh, but we're making films on television now. Yep, um, I like completely like just the size of the screen is the difference, you know? So, um, I'm satisfied with what I've chosen to do. And I'm always regret <laughs> working on a film because sometimes those film schedules just are never ending. You never know when you're done. You never know, but for a TV show, it's like, oh, this is due next week. All right, great. Next, next episode. Yeah, absolutely, I would challenge anyone to
0: say that the cinematography and quality, and let's say the crown, wasn't mm-hmm. equal to you know any film you'd watch. Yeah. I mean, that stuff is so rich and lush. It's a mm-hmm. great, great work. And you did mention that you have taught your employees how to to do it, and it you know VFX is almost in autopilot, and so. Mm-hmm it's a, here's a question that we like to ask on this podcast, which is, if you had one month to teach someone how to be a visual effects artist, what would be the first three things you would teach?
1: Um, well, I would teach, uh, Photoshop right away. Mm-hmm. Cause that's a, a really essential tool. Um, and that, um, and then I would teach, uh, I would make somebody watch, as much Star Trek as possible, <laughs> preferably the next generation. Uh, cause that's where I kind of, my eye leans towards as far as effects goes. Um, uh, and then, and then, um, and then I would just, I would just have them watch me. I've been doing a lot of tutorials, like internal, um, tutorials over zoom just for my employees. So I just make them watch all those. <laughs> um, and I, and a lot of that is just like, this is how I do it and there's other ways to do it, but this is how I personally like to do it. And um, I like to, you know, spend less time, you know, work smarter, not harder um, and be organized and all this stuff. So, so yeah, I would, I would, I would make sure they, they, they learn Photoshop, watched a bunch of TV and movies and just like critique the effects watch a bunch of breakdowns. Like there's a lot of visual effects breakdowns out there. Um, Figure out how things work and, and, and uh, ask me anything. Like I I'm willing to teach whatever. So um, and I'll make a tutorial. I mean, it's not going to be released to anybody, but my employees, but I'm willing to make tutorials just for that. So I love it. Thank you so much for
0: that. And Ah, Sevan, this has been such a fun conversation, my man, this has been great. great. And I, I've really enjoyed it. I, I, I can't thank you enough for, for spending the time. Uh, tell everybody where they can find you on social media, the internet, and maybe even where they can see some of your work.
1: Yeah, if you know how to spell my name, <laughs> it's S-E-V-A-N-N-A-J-A-R-I-E-N. That's pretty much my username everywhere. So you can just look me up, um, like on Instagram, Twitter. Um, I don't usually do Facebook. Um, I don't really pay attention to a lot of the social medias, but, um, yeah, you can also look up Midnight Kids Studios, uh, website. It's called, it's called MidKids Studios, M-I-D-K-I-D, studios.com. Um, and a lot of our work is there. I have a Vimeo that's pretty cool. There's some, there's like a high definition version of House of Cosby's on there. Um, or, uh, oh no, high definition version of, uh, Doc and Marty, the, the, the cartoon before Rick and Morty that we made. Mm-hmm. Um, and also check out frequency one I one the podcast. Um, it's just one of my newest obsessions and I make a show on there called enter the dark. Um, we're on like episode five right now. Um, it's just a really fun, like horror movie, um, uh, audio only. So, and you can, you can, anybody in the world can submit and we want competition. So submit something. It's easy. Oh, it's just, wow. it's just audio. All right. You guys heard it right there. If you're listening to
0: this, get your audio, uh, uh, work together, your content together and submit it. And who knows where it can go. And there's your open invitation to all you creatives out there that are listening to this. And I'll, I'll, I'll end our conversation on this, Evan. Um, it's no secret that you're a fan of, uh, Alan Watts and Carl mm -hmm. Sagan and Bill Hicks and you like politics, religion, and, and and sci-fi in general, whether it be Star Wars, Star Trek, George Lucas, whatever. Yeah. And so my question to you is, what is your best argument for or against us living in a simulation right now?
1: Oh my God. Um let's see. I think um hmm. I think if it's a simulation, if it's a simulation, it's not what we think of as an act. It's not, it's not, it's probably cannot be defined in our own terms of what we think a simulation actually is um Mm -hmm. i think it's an unexplainable thing if i i think it's absolutely possible and it's probably more probable than not um but is it does it does it fall into the definitions that we hold as what a simulation is i don't think that's true um i think it's more complicated or less comp maybe it's simpler than we think Mm um yeah i mean some of those kinds of things like like determinism and stuff, it's like I, you can fall down a hole like worrying about are we in a deterministic society? Um, or you could just live as if you don't, you're not, <laughs> you know, like it, live as live as if, you know, whatever you believe is true, I think. Um, and you you'll be happier. Um, whatever it is that you believe, just live as if that you that is true. And you'll be so much happier,
0: right? And I always think that the best argument against the simulation is that it's just a proxy for the God story again. Yeah. It's, like, it's like I'm living my life to make the master of my avatar happy, so right. that he doesn't turn the game off. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like I don't.
1: Yeah, that, that's why I think it's not what we think. It's it, whatever it is. It's not what we think it is somehow. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, uh, gosh. seven.
0: I could talk to you probably for another uh, week straight. Yeah, we could do this again. On this platform. I would love around to two. topics we can talk about. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. We're going to hit them all. And um, this has been my pleasure. I wish you the best of luck uh, with everything that you do and a wonderful 2021 coming up. Thank you so much, man. Absolutely. All Take right. Care. Take care. Bye. You've been listening to the make it podcast to find more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives. Please visit our website at www.banzai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for make it bonsai creative, and the show will pop right up. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on Book Us to schedule a free discovery meeting and needs assessment. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.